Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name's Bobby. I'm an alcoholic. My home group is the McKean Street Miracle Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. We meet at St. Agnes Hospital, brought to McKean Street in South Philadelphia, seven nights a week at 7 o'clock. If you ever happen to be in the neighborhood, please stop by. We'd like to have you. Chapter 5 of the Big Book tells me what I'm supposed to do. I will tell you in a general way what my life was like as an active alcoholic, what happened to me, and what my life is like today as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But before I start that, I, I definitely like to thank the committee for the privilege of participating in the AA meeting. And like we say back in Philly, how you doing? <laughs> how you doing? <laughs> I was born and raised in a very blue-collar, very ethnic neighborhood. I got seven. Uh, I'm one of eight. I got seven brothers and sisters. There was no booze at all in my house. My father did not drink. My mother could not drink. My mother suffered from a history of mental illness and abuse, prescription medications, so we had no booze at all in the house. My grandparents lived around the corner from us, and they had a bar in the basement. And that's where all the family functions were held, the christenings, the graduations, and things like that. And that's where I had my first drink. I didn't get drunk. I was just a kid. And what I remember about it, I remember it was Valentine beer. And I remember that because Valentine used to sponsor the Phillies. And I remember going to Connie Mack Stadium with my father and the old school board in right center field. And what I did, I, I, was, going, I was going around and polishing off the half-empties or, or the half-fulls. And my uncles were looking at me, and they said, hey, look at him, look at Bobby. And that's when I craved the attention, you know. I never felt a part of. And that's pretty tough to do when you've got ten people living in a three-bedroom row home. But, you know, I never felt a part of, and that would be even true into early recovery. My drinking really took off in high school. Most of the kids in the neighborhood, they went to a local high school. But my parents had sent me to a private Jesuit high school. And most of the kids who went to the school were from affluent families from the suburbs. It was just me and a couple other dirtballs in the neighborhood who went there. And as they said, you know, we used to walk to school, so we had a reputation. And uh, as these kids were getting dropped off by their parents in their luxury automobiles, me and the guys from the neighborhood were inside robbing their lockers. And, and I knew that was wrong. But again, because we had this reputation, you know, it was a, a lot of these kids, it was their first introduction to the inner city. We used to walk to school, and they were terrified of us. And uh, so we capitalized on that. My freshman year at the prep, I'm there about two or three weeks. It's football season. Uh, we got a... a we ran a bus, it's an away game, we got drinking, we got fighting, we got police activity, it's just insanity, and I loved it. And the following, you know, the, the following Monday, we had to show up, and the disciplinarian had us all lined up. He made a beeline to me and another guy from the neighborhood. We're the only two freshmen, everyone else are upperclassmen. He came up to us, he says, what's with you guys? You guys here two weeks, and you're getting a jackpot already. He just shrugged my shoulders, you know, Father, just one of them things. <laughs> and uh, that would be the story, you know. This school was located at, on the corner of 18th and Thompson, and four blocks away was the subway. And these kids, they were so terrified, they used to take the trolley the four blocks to catch the subway. They were scared to walk. Three blocks away, there was a bar called the Ebony Showcase Lounge. And my sophomore year, I was a regular at the Ebony. And I went there for a couple different reasons. You know, uh, they had dancers, they had cold beer. But again, it was this reputation that me and the guys in the neighborhood, we had to keep up. And... Uh, 
So I would stroll out Dorado Avenue and sit in the Ebony like a tough guy. And, and I can now tell you every time I strolled out Dorado Avenue and sat in the Ebony, I was terrified. But I didn't want anybody, I, you know, let, let them know any differently. And, and this would, uh, would be the story of my life. I did things in my gut that knew I was wrong, but I did it anyway because you guys come to expect it. I don't want to let you down, you know. I had a lot of nicknames, and one of those nicknames was crazy. And I would do things, you know, because you expected it. When it came time to graduate from the prep, I really had no desire to further my education, and uh, it kind of took my parents off, and I knew I couldn't stay home because there would be hell to catch. And I had very little options because I had no money and nothing else. So the only thing left for me was to do was to enlist in the service, and that's what I did. And back then, that really wasn't a bright move because nobody else was going. In fact, people were avoiding it. And uh, I wound up enlisting, and I got sent overseas, and I spent 13 months overseas. And that's when my drinking really took off. You know, uh, I, I was there a couple months, and several good friends of mine got killed, and I didn't know how to handle that. So I, I numbed myself with the booze, you know. I never messed around with other substances. I had grown up in the neighborhood. I know a lot of guys got, went over and got whacked on certain things. I didn't mess with nothing, but I was definitely drunk by the time I got there. And during my tour, I, I did, my alcoholism definitely progressed. And I didn't know how to tell people what was going on because, you know, when we grew up, we didn't tell nobody nothing. You know, it was all surface stuff, you know, and we kept everything inside and everything within the walls of the family. And once you left the house to get married or go to school, whatever the case may be, you were no longer privy to the secrets of the family. That's just the way it was. And uh, so uh, booze numbed the pain. I didn't distinguish myself. I didn't do Bailey either. I gave the bare minimum effort required to get by, and I was satisfied with that. My tour was up. I came home. I enrolled in school uh, at St. Joe's College. I went there for a bit. And... Uh, you know, it's taking up space, didn't know what I wanted to do. Wound up taking a couple civil service examinations. And then one day in the spring, uh, mid-70s, a friend of mine called me up and said, Bobby, you know, uh, the Phillies, uh, they're playing one of these uh, businessmen specials, one of those mid-afternoon games, like 12.30 in the afternoon. I said, all right, I'll go. So me and four guys from the neighborhood, I cut class, we go down to the game. I'm sitting up on the 700 level. They had since moved to the vet. It's a hot day, and the sun's beating down, and I'm drinking that cheap, watered-down beer. And I said, you know what? I said, I'm going to run down on the field and meet one of the players. And they kind of shrugged my sh their shoulders because, you know, another nickname I had was Bullshit Bob. I said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. I, I didn't do nothing. I drank. That's all I did. But I had worked my way down to the old picnic area, and I had jumped over the fence. And uh, the San Diego Padres were in town, and Dave Winfield was playing right field for the Padres. And I ran out in the right field, and I shook his hand. I said, hi, Dave, how you doing? And he looked at me. He said, brother, he said, what are you doing out here? After behind him, I saw the guards come. I said, Dave, i got to go now. So, so I started running towards the infield. I wanted to slide into second base. And I, but as I was coming to the, the infield, I saw guards were coming from the third base side. If I knew if I slid, I would get caught. So I turned around. I started uh, going towards first base. I'm walking to give myself up. And I'm probably as close to the guards as I am to Keith right now. And I'm walking, like, to give myself up. And at the last second, I deeped the guy, and I ran out and ran out of the outfield. It seemed like I was running around like a lunatic for about ten minutes. But it was, like, more like three or four minutes. And, you know, the sun beating down. I'm getting dizzy. I'm thinking I'm going to throw up. And I finally give up. I, I'm, like, waiting in right field. And up on the scoreboard, they put Mr. Excitement. And I'm, I'm just waiting. And, and uh, finally they got me, and they were taking me off the field. I got a standing ovation from 37,000 people. <laughs> you know, so, 
Chug McGraw was in the bullpen. He gave me the thumbs up, like, way to go. Now, I knew I was going to get a beating from the guards. That was okay. I just got a standing ovation from 37,000 people that could have beat on me all day long because my need to be liked, to be accepted, outweighed everything else. And I knew I would be a legend in the neighborhood for the next few years, you know. I'm glad I had witnesses because if I told people I did it, they would never believe me. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, but just then, right when I was about to get beat, a full-up recluse lieutenant came up to me. He said, what's the matter with you? He said, are you drunk? Are you high? I said, no, I said, I'm just happy. I'm happy to be here. He said, well, you better get your happy ass out of the stadium. So not only did he save me from getting a beaten, but most importantly, he saved me from getting arrested, which was important because in civil service exams, one of them panned out. And a couple months later, I got hired by the Philadelphia Police Department. It's amazing. You know, I'm not even old enough to drink in Pennsylvania. The drinking age is 21. We used to go to Jersey. It was right across the river. In fact, I could be in New Jersey quicker than other parts of Philadelphia where I lived. And the drinking age at that time in Jersey was 18. But once I came on the job, you know, I could do whatever I wanted. I spent most of my time in North Philadelphia, a pretty rough area. I worked at a Spanish barrio uh, for about 10 years in uniform there. And uh, I saw the ravages of alcoholism and drug addiction day in, day out. And at the end of my tour, I would go to uh, the bar with guys from my squad and we would drink. And I saw things that bothered me, and I started participating in behaviors that I wasn't comfortable with because I worked with older guys. All these guys, they were all uh, non-vets. You know, I want to be part of, you know. I want to be, and I was afraid if I told them what was really going on that I wouldn't be accepted. I didn't want to be thought less than. And I started doing a lot of things I shouldn't be doing, and I just, just nuts. And the handwriting was on the wall. You know, it was... uh, in my family, we got a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, our guys in my family uh, are on this job. And uh, I was at a family function one time, and my uncle had pulled me off to the side. And he said, you know what, Bobby, I'm hearing stories about you. You want to get yourself in a jackpot, you better slow down. One ear and out the other. I was uh, 24 years old, and I uh, shot, and kid, a 15-year-old, shot and killed a 15-year-old kid in the line of work. And it was, uh, it was just a terrible situation. I couldn't be avoided. And... Uh, I use it as an excuse to crawl in a bottle, and that's what I did for the next three years. So I, I wound up getting sober when I was 27. But uh, it, it was just ugly, you know. And uh, my drinking took me to a lot of my nevers, and one of those nevers was the use of other substances. I said I would never do this. Well, you know, I wound up getting uh, promoted and transferred, and I, uh, I was drinking, I was in a bar working, and I was put in a position where I thought I had to do certain things. And because my judgment was impaired by my drinking, I got involved in other things. And my drug history is very short. It lasted 17 months, but it helped me come into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I think due to the fifth tradition, that's all I need to say about that stuff, you know. It was ugly, you know. Uh, I made my first meeting in 1979. I don't tell people I went out because I really never came in. But what had happened, I showed up at work one day, and uh, one of my co-workers was drunk. And we had a counseling unit, like the EAP unit, part of the EAP unit, they had an AA meeting. An AA group there, uh, like for like for sworn personnel. So I showed up at work, and the supervisor says, "Drive this guy up to the unit." I said, "Okay." And I'm coming down the driveway, and I pull up, and there's a guy sitting on the porch. His name's Eddie M. And Eddie's sitting on the rocking chair, and I said, "Eddie, I'm dropping this guy off. I'll be back at four o'clock to pick him up." He looked me dead in the eye because we had worked out of the same uh, place. He said, "Hey, kid, do you want to come in?" I said, "No, I don't." And I was even insulted that he asked me. Because 
I knew what an alcoholic was. An alcoholic was those poor people I was dealing with day in, day out. You know what? I thought AA was for you older guys, you married guys, you guys with the three heads. You know, I didn't have a problem. I was a beer drinker, and there was no way you could be an alcoholic drinking beer. And the only time I drank hard liquor was like on St. Patty's Day or New Year's Day or payday. But I was a beer drinker, and, and I definitely didn't have a problem. It was funny because I got sober a few years later, and Eddie was one of the first guys I saw. And he smiled. He said, so, kid, you finally came around, you know. And that uncle who was a, a boss on the job, uh, I was uh, sober two years, and I ran into him at a meeting. And I found out that he was sober a long time. And I realized back then that he was trying to 12-step me. And I said, Jimmy, how come you didn't tell me? He said, I told you. He said, you just weren't ready yet. See, my family, the sober people, the black sheep, we keep that love. <laughs> but uh, my drinking, man, it took me to a lot of my nevers. It was ugly. Towards the end of my drinking, people wouldn't even want to hang out with me anymore, you know? And I would say, come on. And they would make up excuses. I got to do this. I got to do that. They would even say, you know, I'm broke. I said, don't worry about that. I got you covered. And they say, no, that's okay, Bobby. And you know what? That's bad when you can't even buy people anymore. I was a nasty drunk. That story I told about running on the field, that, that's a true story. And I tell that story for a couple of different reasons. One, it's the only funny story I got. Uh, because I wasn't a funny guy. Uh, I, I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't a lover. I was none of that stuff. I was a lion thieving, stinking, falling down, violent drunk. And if I hung around you, you had something I wanted. I used and abused everybody I came in contact with. I was nasty. And another reason... I was a major blackout drinker from my earliest drinking in high school. There's a lot of things that I do not remember. I would remember showing up at the corner the next day, and the guys would tell me what I did before, and I laughed it off or, or even lied and said I remembered, but I didn't remember. I was a blackout drinker, drinking beer, a blackout drinker. So uh, so uh, what is it here? Uh, moving along, uh, I, I, I try to stop drinking lots of times. You know, the handwriting was on the wall. I was getting kind of jammed up on the job, you know, start doing crazy things, uh, start abusing my sick time. I had a supervisor who pulled me off to the side. He said, you know what, kid? You're smart. You're going to go places, but that booze is going to mess you up. One ear and out the other. A couple years later, ran into him. He was a longtime member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Everyone tried to help me. I was the last guy to figure it out. Memorial Day weekend uh, in 85, I'm sitting in a bar, guys from my squad were drinking, and one of the guys I was with, uh, he said, I'm going to drive home because we had to work last out. We had to work at midnight that night. I said, tell you what, I'll give you a ride home because I don't think I was as drunk as he was. So he thought it was a good idea. So he got in my car, and I'm driving out the street. And I spot a kid about a block away, a block and a half away on a bike. And I decided I was going to show off my driving skills to this guy that I worked with. And I started playing chicken with this kid. And unfortunately, at the last second, we turned in the same direction, and I ran this kid over. As he lied bleeding on the hood of my car, I got out of my car on my nightstick. I was going to beat this kid because I thought he was milking me for an insurance claim. The guy that I was with prevented me from doing that. I pulled that kid off the hood of my car, threw him off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I pulled this crumpled bicycle from underneath my car, threw that off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I drove back to the bar. I made a remark. I scored 10 points, and I continued on drinking. When I came to it the next day, I realized I was in serious, serious trouble, but I didn't think anybody would help me because I was such a creep. And I didn't know what to do. So I, I got a, a bottle of liquor, a case of beer, and some other substances, and I checked in a hotel with the intentions to consume all this stuff to end my life. 
And three days later, they're knocking on the door of the hotel room to kick me out. And I couldn't shoot myself at this time. I was suspended from my job. I no longer had access to a weapon. So what I did, I walked over to the window, and I opened up the window, and I was going to jump out. And I opened up the window, and I was on the fifth floor. And I remembered I was scared of heights. You know, I, got, I made 23 jumps in the service here. I'm scared of heights still. I don't want to do this. So I, I, I go in uh, the bath, uh, bathroom, and I filled the bathtub up with water, and I had a blow dryer. And I was going to pull the blow dryer in the tub to make it appear an accidental electrocution. And every time I would pull the blow dryer into the tub, it would come unplugged. I was about a foot and a half short on cord. And I got one foot in the tub, and I'm leaning, trying to plug it in. And, and it's, it seems like a, it's, it's like a scene out of a Woody Allen movie. I couldn't even kill myself. So uh, the only thing I had left was my car. Uh, so I took one last spin through the neighborhood, and, uh, you know, I, I need to back up for a minute. I'm kind of nervous. Two weeks before this, before I ran this kid over, I was home from work, and there was an ad in the paper. It said alcohol problems, drug problems, marital problems, depression, thoughts of suicide. I was four out of five. I was single. And I'm sure if I was married, I'd have been batting a thousand. And I took a look at it, and they talk about the moment of sanity. I look at the ad, they say, maybe, but it quickly left. But something made me cut that ad out, and I stuck it in my wallet. So the only other tool that I had left was my car. So I took one last spin through the neighborhood. I started up at the Falls Bridge, and I come uh, driving down uh, the East River Drive which is a winding road along the Schuylkill River in Philadelphia. And uh, I decided I was going to end my life in an automobile accident. And as I was coming down the drive, I really didn't want to go into oncoming traffic because something just hit me at this point. I got tired of hurting other people. And like I said, I hurt everyone, everyone I came in contact with. And I really didn't want to go on oncoming traffic to do that because of my job. You know, I, I saw like how families are devastated after tragedies. It's amazing that the wake that it leaves. And I didn't want to do that, so I decided I would wrap myself around a tree. And it's a very winding road, and, uh, you know, I finally pulled over. And I'm surprised I didn't get into an accident, you know, because, you know, I just had no control. I mean, I'm cooked, I'm crying, I, I, I'm just out of my mind. But I now know my higher power is looking out after me. I, I, back then, I didn't know that. I'm sitting behind the wheel of the car, and I'm crying like a baby for about ten minutes. And I reached into my wallet, and there was that ad that I clicked out of Daily News two weeks before. So it's no longer there, but at the end of Boathouse Road, it's one of those glass and closed phone booths. So I go over the phone booth, and I whip out that ad, and I call the number on the ad. And I spoke to this woman who answered the phone like I spoke to no one in my life before. I told her the truth. I figured she didn't know me from a can of paint. I didn't know those. I could always hang up. But once I started, I couldn't stop. And I just, it just, everything poured out. And she listened patiently, God bless her, and that when, she, when I got done, she said, drive over to Hahnemann Hospital, somebody will be waiting for you. I said, okay. So I got in my car, I drove over to Hahnemann Hospital, and they were waiting for me, and they admitted me to the 10th floor of the psychiatric unit. And I was there about three or four days, and from there I got transferred to the VA hospital out in West Philadelphia. And I spent about six weeks in their flight deck, and from there I got transferred to the VA hospital out in Coatesville, and I spent another couple of weeks in their flight deck before they put me into an alcohol and drug ward. When I pulled over to ask for help that day, Alcoholics Anonymous was the furthest thing from my mind. I did not think that I was an alcoholic. I didn't think I had a problem with booze. I thought it was my short use of other substances. Maybe I got this stress stuff they're talking about. You know, got it from the service, got it from my job. You know, it, uh, maybe I got this mental illness and I inherited that from my mother. This, that. It was everything else. You know, my girl was nuts. I was, it was everything. But it, it wasn't booze. Uh, you know, I hate so I, got, I finally, the first day I get put in the alcohol and drug ward, I'm sitting in the day room, and up on the 
the Dave wall. They had the large window shades of the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. I go up to them. I zip through the steps. I got about four or five of them done already. I saw the amends. I said, they're screwed. That doesn't apply to me. And I, I, I was a nitwit. But what happened later that night, two men come out, and I would later find out that they were part of the treatment facility committee, and they were on a commitment. The moment that these speakers said something about their background that I didn't like, couldn't relate to, or didn't identify with, I would immediately tune them out. I was too busy listening to the messenger and not the message. Besides, everyone was getting locked up, and I had a problem with that, you know. And I seen these guys, and guys that was, you know, I said, I, I never did that. I now know that my job kept me out of a lot of trouble because I, I got pulled over all the time. But, uh, you know, they were all criminals. I saw, you know, I, I was a better class of drunk. And I was just nuts. But what bothered me the most, at the end of that meeting, everyone held hands, got in a circle, held hands, and said, Lord's Prayer. And I said, if this is what you people were about, I don't want nothing to do with you. And the reason was because... Uh, I was 15 years old. I came home from school, and I'm in my house for about 10 minutes. And I finally come across my mother, and I found my mother. She had slid her wrist. And I remember she was. Uh, she looked up at me. She said, Bobby, help me. And I looked down at her. I said, good for you. And I walked out of the house. And I got an older guy to get me a quart of wine. I stayed out all night, and I came back later that night. And my father had told me what happened. But then it was too late, and I acted surprised. I said, oh, yeah, how about that? So that happened when I was 15. I got sober when I was 27. That's 12 years of resentment towards God. I don't want nothing to do with you. And it would be another few years before I would even deal with this. So I broke away from the group and would not participate in the prayer. For some reason, the nurse took a liking to me. And I don't know why, because, I, you know, I was a knucklehead. And I did everything just to keep people at bay, you know. And it was all front of facade, because truth was, you know, I was fearful, you know. But this nurse took a liking to me for some reason. She came up to me on the day I was getting out. She said, you know what? She said, you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know what I need to tell you? That's where I would find my recovery. You know, the AA, uh, the VA helped me out tremendously, but I would get my recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I made meetings. From that day on to this day, I made meetings every single day. And I would get there late and I would leave early. I don't drink coffee, so I don't make it. I don't smoke cigarettes, so I don't empty any ashtrays. I go into a big book meeting or step meeting strictly by accident. I would leave at the break. I have something more important to do. God forbid a tradition meeting. You know, what's this? Rules? In my job, we're the worst. <laughs> man, we love to enforce them, but man, they don't apply to us. We're the worst when it comes to rules. And everyone was locked up, and I had a problem with this. And I, you know, and, and but I made meetings every day, and I was crazy as a bed bug. And you know, they would hold hands, and I would not participate in the prayer, and I would step off to the side. And the older guys would smile, and they said, "Keep coming back." And I thought they'd be facetious. And I said, "Okay, old, I'll come back." And I kept coming back, and I, I was nuts. I was sober, uh, about, I think, about 10 months, and I'm sitting in this bar because they sell real good roast beef, right? And I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there, and I'm drinking seltzer out of a rock glass, you know, and uh, back then I told you it was good roast beef, but the truth was I was an arrogant guy, you know. On my job, I had a lot of success, a lot of publicity, and, and towards the end of my uh, drinking, uh, a lot of negative publicity, a, a lot of trouble. So the arrogance of me, I needed to go back to the neighborhood to show the guys that I was okay. You know, I was back, I was doing good again, and, and that's why I was there, because I was a show-off. So I'm drinking seltzer, a couple guys come in, they start giving me a hard time, breaking my stones, you know, remarks back and forth, and I finally had it. So I stood up and I had a rock glass and I just punched this guy right in the face with the glass. And I cut him severely, bled like a pig. 
And the cops came, and the guys who handled the job, they knew me. They cut me a break, and they let me go. And that's where I learned my lessons about people, places, and things. And I have since found a place that sells real good roast beef without being in that type of environment. I didn't need to be there, you know. I was sober uh, uh, just under a year, and all the men were going on a retreat. And they signed me up. And uh, they knew, I guess, I needed it because I wouldn't pray with them. So they signed me up, and they said, you're going on this retreat. And this is what I'm talking about, like doing things in my gut that I'm not comfortable with just to please you. I really want to be liked by these guys. And I wanted to go, but I didn't want to go because I had this resentment towards God. I didn't want nothing to do with this. But I was afraid to tell them about my mom. I, I mean, like, like who, who can like live with that? And I was afraid to tell them about that. So driving up to the retreat, the closer I'm getting to the retreat, I'm getting a knot in my stomach. I'm there about 10, 15 minutes I run into the retreat master. As soon as he saw me, his eyes lit up and he smiled. He was my disciplinarian from high school. And not only that, but he was a longtime member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he just smiled. He said, man, he said, it's good to see you. He said, so you, that was your problem, huh? And we started talking. He said, listen, you know, he wanted to know what my deal was. I told him what my deal was. He said, you got yourself a sponsor? I said, no, I ain't got one. So I'm a pretty smart guy. I don't need one. He said, I suggest you get a sponsor. I said, okay. So I asked my roommate to be my sponsor. Just in case in the future, if I was ever questioned, I said, there you go. You got a sponsor? I said, yeah, that's him. That's my sponsor. And I would go to meetings, and this guy would say, Bobby, I still got that same phone number. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll give you a call. I never called him. You know what I used to do? I used to talk about this guy. I said, oh, you won't believe this guy. He's making me do this, do that. He didn't do nothing. I made it all up. He put the hand of AA. He put the hand of help out there, and I'm the one who slapped it away. I was uh, early recovery, uh, first couple years or so. I used to go to a lot of go-go bars, right? And I would get my picture taken. And I would come to the meeting and pass the pictures around because I really wanted to be liked by the old-timers, and I figured they would like this. <laughs> they, they would look at the picture and just shake their head, and they said, please keep coming back. <laughs> you know? I was crazy as a bed bug. I am sorry. 23 months sober, making meetings every single day in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I beat another man with a baseball bat. I forget what step I was working that day, but man, I was nuts. I was, I was crazy. And I was here, what I was hearing was, you can do whatever you want as long as you don't, just don't drink. And I was, okay, that sounds good to me. And I wasn't drinking, but I was doing a lot of things that you shouldn't be doing. And you know what? I was paying the emotional price. Second anniversary came, I didn't celebrate it. 25 months, one month after my second anniversary, I wanted to eat my gun. The same pathetic feeling I had 25 months before, but 25 months before, I'm loaded with drugs and alcohol. Here I am, stone cold sober, in the rooms of alcohol, and I just wanted to eat my gun. Safe to assume my life was unmanageable. You know, I hated everybody, but you know who I hated the most? I hated those guys who were coming behind me, you know, because I'm caught up on this seniority thing. Because in my home group, we got a little court board there, you know, for the anniversaries for the, for the month. First name, last initial, how many years, on the day you celebrate. I'm not proud of this. This is God's honest truth. I got two years, you got three years, and you went out. I said, good for you. I move up. <laughs> Nuts. But I hated everyone. But you know what? I hated the guys behind me. Because, you know what? Like, I could fake the talk because, you know, like, like I, I was, you know, on the ball. But, you know, you couldn't, you know, I was nuts, and you could see right through it. 
But these guys behind me, they were getting well before me. And you know, I could tell they were getting well. They had this glow about them. You couldn't fake that. I hated them the most. I said, how dare they get sober before me? I got more time than they got. I swear to God, I had no idea who John Barleycorn was. I was wondering why everybody was blowing this guy's anonymity. I said, you know what? I was saying, you know what? He's really one tough SOB. I want one tangle with him. When I found out who John Barleycorn was, I felt so stupid. But here I was so damn bright. Damn near killed me. I would sit in meetings and share my witty stories and go to the men's room or go get a cup of tea or something and come back and sit. The seat next to me would be vacant. They'd be sitting on the other side of the room. They couldn't get away from me quick enough. Then they put the old evil eye on them, try to stare them down. You know, uh, no one asked them to be their sponsor. No one wanted, the hell, wanted what the hell I had, you know. I carried the disease. I didn't carry no message. I was nuts. So almost 26 months sober, I'm at a meeting one day, and there's a guy from my neighborhood. His nickname is Troubles. I don't sum it up. Uh, Troubles was a... Was a was a nut. And he was in and out of jail in the 60s and the 70s like a revolving door. But you know what? He was sober a long time. And I could tell that he was for real because it wasn't in the rooms of AA. It was in the neighborhood where it was tough to stay sober. For me, it's easy to stay sober in an AA meeting. But out in the neighborhood where things were going on, and I saw this guy, and, and, and Troubles had this glow about him. And he was for real. And I went up to him after the meeting one day, and I said, Bobby, uh, he didn't like to be called Troubles. <laughs> I said, Bobby, I said, I need some help. I said, would you be my sponsor? He looked me dead in the eye, and uh, I figured he liked me. We grew up. He's a few years older than me, but, you know, we're from the same neighborhood. He said, Bobby, I've been watching you for the past couple of years, and I'm sticking my chest out. Yeah, he likes me. He says, I need to tell you. He said, you're full of shit. And I stood there, and I couldn't believe he said this. He said, I'm going to be your sponsor under certain conditions. You're going to call me every single day. You're going to go to a big book meeting a week. You're going to go to a step meeting a week. You're going to go to a men's meeting. You're going to get yourself a coffee commitment, and you're going to leave them damn women alone. And I'm saying to myself, like, who's he talking to? I'm 26 months over here. I'm selling the grapevines. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but, but, but what I did do, I looked them dead in the eyes. I said, okay, I'm willing to do that. And I believe that's the night that I took the first three steps. I mean, I knew that I was powerless over alcohol, but like I said, I went to eat my gun. My life was definitely unmanageable, you know? And if the problem was powerlessness, the solution it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. I didn't need to write on that for 30 days. If that was the problem, the solution was a power greater than myself. And I knew it was working. Regardless of my own resentment towards God and the way I was raised, I knew it was working because I seen these guys behind me getting sober. And I see some basket cases get straightened out. So I knew something was happening. I just needed to work through whatever I had to go through. And I made a commitment. I made a commitment to go to any length to get sober. He introduced me to the big book. He said, this is what we do. I went home with him that night. He got on his knees with me. We said the third step prayer. He said, now it's time to do your inventory. I didn't do one. I didn't want to do one of these. I was going to meetings, you know, and people talking about this fourth step. Whoa. Easy does it. <laughs> don't want to get well too soon, do you? That's the craziest saying I ever heard. I'll talk later. I'm a cancer survivor. I'll talk more about that later. But don't want to get well too soon. It's nuts. But I didn't want to do one of these because I was scared. And then you know what? I did my inventory. You know what? It wasn't that big. Everything I wrote down, I did. I no surprises jumped out. 
and it wasn't a life story. He showed me the directions on how to do it. Now the fifth step, that was scary, because I knew I had to do it with him, so, I, so I'm a pretty clever dude. So I said, Bobby, I'm going to go on a retreat this week, and I'm going to do my fifth step with a priest. He said, that's great. He said, when you get done, you come back and do it with me. <laughs> and you know how sponsors could be. Like, I'm on the phone, like, saying to myself, what are you, deaf? You didn't hear me? I said, Bobby, I said, I said, I said I'm going on a retreat. I said, I do it with a priest. He said, Bobby, I heard you. He said, when you get done, you're going to come to my house and do it with me. And then, before I could say anything, Bobby, he said, my job is to walk you through these steps. But I'm going to help you with your character defects. I think I need to know what they are. And the truth was, even though I wrote God down as resentment, you know, on my fourth step, I still had it. The only reason I wanted to go on the retreat was I figured whatever I told the priest was going to stay between me and him. There were a lot of things about my behavior I was embarrassed about. And I couldn't tell my sponsor that because he would run out and tell everybody. Uh, he would pass judgment on me. He would ridicule me. And I would later find out that my fear list wasn't complete. Because they were all unfounded fears. In fact, those fears I had, not only were they unfounded, he didn't do any of those things. In fact, what he did during the fifth step, he shared some of his stuff with me, which took away the terminal uniqueness that I thought that I had, that I was the only guy to do certain things. And for that, I'll be forever in his debt. I sat quietly for that hour that the book talks about. And the reason being because he told me to. Like, I was going to go home and says, nah, nah. He, had, he lived by himself. He, had, he was, uh, had a big home. He said, I got a, a little quiet room upstairs. You sit up there for an hour. And he said, don't doze, don't doze off. It's not sleeping. Just sit quietly for the hour. And I did. And, and, you know, I can only share my experience. When I got done, the only thing I can say was the screaming inside stopped. Now, that may not sound a lot, like a lot, but you know what? For me, it was great. Because here I was at this point, sober almost, uh, I don't know, two and a half years because it took me about four or five months to do that four step because by nature I guess I'm a lazy guy. Pain's a real good motivator. But uh, the screaming inside stopped, man, and that was an incredible experience. And uh, I didn't burn it. I know there's a lot of fires going on out there. Uh, I didn't burn it because I needed it for the next uh, four steps, you know. I had now had black and white with my character defects were, and I didn't know what these were. I, you know, I, I didn't know nothing about character defects. And, uh, in fact, I knew that when I drank, I was a character. But I found out when I got done my inventory, I had no character whatsoever. You know, and I became willing. And then the seventh step was a prayer. But my sponsor, God bless him, he would say, Bobby, you need to put legs on those prayers. I mean, I can pray all day long. God, help me be patient. Help me be patient. And if I'm in a situation during the course of my day, and you kind of push my buttons, and I respond, you know, that prayer goes right out the window. And he had told me that God would do for me what I couldn't do for myself, but this was a program of action. You can't use God as a cop-out. The eighth step, since I didn't burn my fourth step, half that eighth step was complete. And I added more names. And I was one of these guys who would catch me in a meeting. I said, I didn't harm anybody but myself. That right there should have been a tip-off that I never did an inventory. Because like I said, I found out that I harmed everybody, especially my family. So I, I, I made the list, and I became willing. If I didn't have the willingness, I prayed for the willingness. And the ninth step, direct amends. No phone calls, no letters, because I didn't rob you or beat you through the phone or through the mail. And then when I want to take those measures, that, you know, my sponsor say, Bobby, that would say indirect amends. You know, and I can make stories up, and when I make them stories up, the truth is I'm afraid to face people. He said direct amends. And I'd like to share two experiences on the ninth step. 
I was at a meeting uh, about seven, eight years ago, and I, I'm living in South Philadelphia. I'm in this meeting in North Philadelphia. And uh, I see this guy that I have not seen since 1977. Now, he's not on my A-step list, not through any fear. I think just out of sight, out of mind, plain forgot. But as soon as I saw this guy, I recognized him. So uh, I, I was speaking at this meeting, so I stand up and, and I say, uh, my name is Bobby Coyle, I'm an alcoholic. And I need to tell you why I use my full name. You know, I, you know, I think a lot of the traditions are misunderstood, but this 11th one is definitely a big one. All of a sudden, people think, you know, like, like this becomes the mafia. And we get all these nicknames. And you got Bucktooth Mary and Frank the Fox and Pepsi George, you know, and all this other stuff. This ain't a secret society. In fact, Dr. Bob said, when one drunk is anonymous from another drunk, that is a violation of the 11th tradition. The 11th tradition is real clear. No full photo in the newspaper, no full photo on television, no full name on the radio, and saying, I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the 11th tradition. It's not a secret society. And Dr. Bob went on and said, anonymity is spiritually inspired, secrecy is spirit inspired. I'm afraid to let people know I'm an AA. Everybody in my neighborhood knew I was a drunk. It was those little telltale signs. They would come out and they would catch me urinating on their car. But my girlfriend be throwing my clothes out the window. I'm, my eyes, I'm cooped. I'm running down the street. Everyone knew I was a drunk. All of a sudden, I get sober. I don't want anybody to know. It's amazing. But, and, and I was very involved in my area where we use full names, but I have no right whatsoever to break anybody else's anonymity. It's just a personal decision I use. So I'm at this meeting. I look this guy dead in the eye. said, my name's Bobby Puyo. I'm an alcoholic. He didn't recognize me at first. You know, we tend to clean up pretty good. We get sober. But he recognized the name. As soon as I said my name, he nodded and he smiled. And I need to tell you what I used to do with this guy. His name was Bob. A lot of Bobs in AA. So his name was Bob. And I used to publicly humiliate this guy in a bar. And the first time I did it, it was by accident. Well, it wasn't by accident. But since he didn't respond, from that point on, whenever I want to impress anybody, I would publicly humiliate him. And I would... Uh, I even slapped him one time, and then one day I even spit on him. I mean, what worse thing can you do to a human being than spit on him? And I'm not a tough guy, and I never was. But, I, you know, it's just that I was a nitwit. And when I got done speaking, I looked him in the eye, and I told the group what I did. And I said, Bob, I says, you know, I'd like to make amends. I'm truly sorry for that behavior, and I hope to God that, that I never do that again. See, my sponsor saying making amends is much more than saying I'm sorry. There are two words for me that don't mean squat. It's about righting the wrong. And I didn't do this at grandstand. I figured if I publicly humiliate him, the least I could do is make amends to him. So he comes up to me and he hugs me. And we start talking. Now, I haven't seen this guy. So this is, what, uh, seven years ago, uh, 94. I haven't seen him in 17 years. And we start talking. And I find out that he's sober five years. And I'm sober uh, longer than he is. And I never saw him before. And I guess that's my arrogance. If you go to meetings in Philadelphia, I must know you, right? My self-importance. I said, Bob, what brings you here tonight? He said, Bob, I was looking through the meeting list, and I just wanted to go to a different meeting. And for some reason, this meeting jumped out at me. I need to tell you, in Philadelphia, we have 1,600 meetings a week. That guy flipped through the directory, and that one meeting jumped out at him. I am a firm believer that God put that guy in my path that particular night. And I had two options. Make amends. Or do what I used to do. Look you dead in the eye and pretend I didn't know you. 
Yeah, and when called, when confronted, I saw oh, you got me confused. You're talking about my brother or something like that. But I made a mention to this guy, and he hugged me and he forgave me. And then, man, that was an incredible experience. The flip side of that, my home group for a while was a stepping stones group in Philadelphia. One day I'm at a business meeting, I make a motion. It was definitely for the betterment of AA, I'm sure. And uh, one of my boys, Freddie, uh, like he didn't back me up. And in fact, he opposed, and uh, my motion got shot down in flames. And uh, I was really mad about this because in my neighborhood, right, wrong, or different, you always back your boys. It's just, it's just what you did. And I could not believe that he did this to me. And I would never speak to him again. I would come to the meeting, and there would be four men sitting at the table. I would say, hi, the three of them, and blow Freddie off. I remember one day I'm at work. One of my coworkers comes up to me and says, Bobby, Freddie Wheels is in nicknames again. He said, Freddie Wheels is outside. He wants to take care of some sort of business. I peeked out the window. I saw him. And my response was, I said, tell him to take his fat ass down to City Hall to do that. He can't do that here. A couple months later, that same coworker called me up. He said, Bobby, he said, Freddie Wheels died last night. And he said, the reason I'm calling you is because he always spoke so highly of you. Now, here he was, a friend of mine who didn't happen to agree with whatever motion was. And as God is my witness, I, I have no idea what that motion was to this day. But here he was, a friend of mine, and uh, put in my path many, many times. I had an opportunity to make amends. I chose not to. And when my coworker, he said, when he said, Bobby, he always spoke so highly of you, I felt about yay big. And I've been praying for Freddie ever since, you know. The 10th step for me is a, and that's just two experiences on the ninth step, you know. The 10th step for me is nothing but four through nine on a regular basis. Now, if I'm going to stand up here and tell you, do I do, do I 10th step every day? I don't. I'd be lying to you. You know, sometimes I fall in that same trap, you know, trying to stay sober on yesterday's sobriety, you know, kick back. And every time I do, I pay the price. But not only do I pay the price, people around me pay the price. My coworkers pay the price. The people who have the misfortune of coming in contact with me during the day, they, they pay the price. My fa- Everyone does because I become a nitwit again. But the nice thing, you know the old saying, you can't miss what you never had? In early sobriety, I loved insanity. In fact, peace of mind scared the hell out of me. And if I was at a meeting when it was getting a little too serene or spiritual for me, I would have to get my hand up and share because I'm sure I was going to pull those people off their square because I was comfortable with insanity. But now, you know, being on the beam for a bit, I like this. And when I get knocked off my beam, I know what i got to do to get back on it, you know. And that's the 10th step. The 11th step through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God. I no longer had that resentment towards God, you know. Uh, and, that, and that was the result of the steps. I got to make amends to my father. I, t- I told my dad uh, about my mom. And you know what? My dad forgave me. And uh, that resentment towards God uh, was lifted. And I no longer had the resentment towards the church because it wasn't the church's fault, just like it wasn't the the military's fault, it wasn't the police department's fault, it wasn't my neighborhood's fault, it was none of that stuff. It was me, Bobby Coyle. I was the problem. And I found that out going through the steps. You know what? And I'm not proud about my past, and I can't change my past. I'd change it in a heartbeat if I could, but I can't. But what the steps enabled me to do enabled me to change my attitude about my past. My past was no longer coming back and biting me in my ass, you know. I was able to live with myself. Sorry for saying that. Backside. So, but, you know, uh, know, I've come a long way, believe me. I used to use that word, the F word, as a noun, a verb, an adjective. It was terrible. I've cleaned up a long way. 
I start getting involved in service, you know, and I start finding out about the traditions. And you know what? I love the traditions. The traditions are to the groups, what the steps are to the individual. You hear the steps are how it works and the traditions are why it works. You know, and, and I just fell in love with this. And again, the theme of this conference, love and, uh, love and service. I mean, Dr. Bob said it. Our preamble says our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. If I'm only staying sober and not helping the other alcoholic achieve sobriety, that's half measures, and half measures fail me nothing. You've got to give it away in order to keep it. But in early recovery, you can't give away what you don't have. And that's I couldn't give it away. The only thing I could give away was insanity. I'd be more happy to give it to you. I gave heartache and misery to people. That's the only thing I gave away. But I, I started getting involved in service, and then I started going because service started taking me to the other areas. Now, Philadelphia is a very parochial city. You know, like, you just didn't go out of your neighborhoods. You know, it's just... You just didn't do it. It was one of them things. But service, used to, I started going to other places. And these 1,600 meetings a week, I can go from South Philly to West Philly. The message is the same. The delivery may be a little bit different. I remember the first time I went to a meeting, and right away, was, man, you guys, they're doing it wrong. Like when you guys open up with the serenity prayer, man, that throws me for a loop because we close with the serenity prayer, you know. And, and a lot of other things I see happening. And I later found out it wasn't wrong. It was just a little different. The message is the same. So I started getting involved in service, got involved in the area, and uh, one of my goals, I know this is wrong, I, I want to be one of the youngest delegates to the, Eastern, uh, to the conference. <laughs> Success, ego, it was nuts. And, and I wound up becoming, a, got involved in the area, and uh, in 1994 I got diagnosed with cancer. And it was a pretty fluke way the way I found out. Like I was training for a marathon, I wanted to run the Boston Marathon, so I was training for the Marine Corps Marathon, and uh, I... Something was going on, so I, I went to get checked, and uh, I was devastated. I, I never smoked in my life. A little reefer here now, but I mean, never smoked those cigarettes. I got, I got diagnosed with lung cancer. And so I went to get a second opinion, and when it got confirmed, man, I was devastated. Now I'm sober for a while, and I don't want you to think I handled this well, because I did not. And, I, and I'm on the pity pot, you know, like, damn, how dare this happen to me? I'm sober for a bit, I'm doing the right thing, that this and that. And, uh, you know, I had a decision to make. I had to do some things. And so uh, I uh, went in the hospital. I, I had uh, some chemo, radiation, uh, went in remission, uh, got sick again. And I had to go back in, and they removed the lower left lobe of my lung. And I, and I had to give up my position in the area. And I didn't want to do it because out of ego. But the truth was I wasn't doing the job. I, I couldn't do it, and the area was better served. So I resigned the position. When I got out of the hospital people start coming to my home and carrying the message. And I, I'm not talking about just friends of mine. I'm talking people that I just met maybe once or twice, twice at the assembly or something like that. And, and I was amazed by that. I mean, you're looking at a liar, thief, and a cheat. I took my entire life. Like I said earlier, the only thing I gave was heartache and misery. And people came to my house to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and I'm a firm believer that I had pretty good docs. But you know what? It was the prayers in AA helped me tremendously. But I love service. You know, when I hear people say, oh, man, that's about politics. Right then I know they got no experience in service. Because I need to tell you, the people that I've been involved in have been the most selfless people that I've ever met. You know, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of times I remember the very first time I got involved was the prison committee. It's amazing considering my line of work. And my sponsor, he said, I'm Bob, I'm going to take you up to the greater field with the state penitentiary. I said, no, you're not. He said, yes, you are. You'll win arguments for your sponsor. I went. I, I said, I can't go up there. You know, I, I, you know, I, I got to make stuff up. I, you know, I, I got to embellish my story. God forbid, I run into someone. 
He said, Bobby, it's nonsense. Uh, they want to hear a message of hope. You got a message of hope, you go up and carry the message. And I need to tell you, the most spiritual meeting I have ever attended has been at the Greater Fort State Penitentiary in Pennsylvania. Now, at that time, Pennsylvania was one of three states that would life without parole. The only way of leaving, they're leaving is feet first. These guys are in the hands of the receivers, and they're going any length to get sober. I mean, what, what's going to happen if you catch them with something? You know, what can you do to these guys? And I need to tell you, I've been at this meeting, and you know what? All those unfounded fears I had, very little profanity, no one trying to intimidate me with any type of story, people not getting up in the meeting to get in coffee, which they do in my home group, I'm embarrassed to tell you. People there on time. And you go to my home, sometimes people come in running late for the meeting. They're shaking everyone's hand like they're running for mayor. I'm sitting there seething, like skiing in front of my ears. Cell phones going all, all this other nonsense. And uh, these guys, man, going to any length to get sober. And for like the hour and a half that you're there, you can forget you're in the surroundings. I was telling Henry on the way up, I was going up there for a number of years, and then one of my greatest honors in AA a number of years ago, they asked me to speak at their Christmas party. And after the meeting, I'm talking to one of this guy that I got friendly with, and he was a lifer. He said, Bobby, uh, what do you do for a living? And I figured we had a bond. I told him. I told him the truth. Man, he started laughing, and he yelled at all the other guys. He said, I told you. I knew he was a They said, we knew you were a cop. We knew as soon as you seen you. But you know what? For three years, the guys never bothered me, you know? And I, they helped me more than I, I could ever help them. And it was incredible, you know? There's a lot of different ways to get involved in service. And I know correction facilities aren't for everyone. You know, some guys make great coffee. Some people work with the newcomers. Some of us have some families, and we may not have the time to get involved. But others may have a little bit more time. You can serve as a GSR, get involved in the area, and do all types of other things. Some guys sweep up behind the scenes. Some guys are real good organizers. Some guys are real good with the checkbook. There are some of us who should never be allowed near a checkbook. But whatever. But I am a firm believer that everybody in this room has some sort of gift. You need, you need to find out what your niche is. It may be different than mine, but you know what? you got to give it away in order to keep it. And we all got something to give away, you know. Uh, service uh, did wonders for me and, and, and enhanced my recovery. I was in Mexico, and we'll finish it up. I was in Mexico almost 10 years ago. I thought I could speak Spanish because of the neighborhood I worked in. I was the only English-speaking person in the room. Those poor people were probably still figuring out what the hell I said. And I could tell by their reaction that I was butchering their language. So I switched over to English, and they still don't know what the hell I was saying. But you know what? After the meeting, they came up and they hugged me. And I can tell who the old-timer was by the surrender in their face. And I could tell who the newcomer was by the pain in their face. Language of the heart. You know what? They didn't understand, but you know what? They understood. I always say this for last, because, you know, because, you know, I'm a lifelong mummer. And I know you guys don't know what mummers are, but it's a parade we do in Philadelphia on New Year's Day. And it's a blast. And what it is, it's 30,000 men in sequins and feathers and makeup, and we dance in the middle of the street. Now, I did a fist step, so I ain't got nothing to worry about. I'll tell you what the deal is. But it's a place. It's the longest continuous parade in the country. It lives about 13 hours. It's, it's a nut. It's a drunk fest. It makes Mardi Gras uh, look like a bunch of sissies, I'm telling you. In fact, I tell people the Mummers Parade, because Mardi Gras stretch over a number of days. The Mummers Parade is like a, uh, it's like a cross between the Full Monty and the Mardi Gras. That's the only way I can describe it. It's a place. 
Well, you know what? I'm a third generation mummer. And mummer, uh, a little, you know, we're just not all drunken bums, a little classic, a uh, little history here. It's taken from the Greek god of ridicule, mummus, the Greek god of ridicule. And it's been going on for almost 200 years in Philadelphia. We just had our 100th official parade, but it went on for many years. The city organized it because it was getting out of hand. So I'm telling my story. I'm at this midnight meeting at the group, and I'm telling my story, and I haven't strutted for a couple years because of uh, my thing. It's being sober. People pushing things. The kid came up to me afterwards and said, listen, would you be interested in watching in the parade this year? I said, no way. What are you, nuts? Can't do that. He says, you don't understand. He said, we got a group together called the 12 Steppers. Everyone's in the program. Sober mummers. It's an oxymoron. It's a nuts. So... We got together, and we started going up the street. In fact, this coming New Year's will be the 11th year, and I just got uh, elected captain of the brigade, which is a nice honor, but this is the 11th year up the street. Three years ago, our brigade came in first place. Never did I ever come near first place. I'd be loaded for a way. I'd put my suit on like New Year's Eve and be out drinking to January 5th. But it was a blast, you know, and we don't do it. You win, you get bragging rights for the day, but that's about it. But this was something that was important to me. I loved doing this, but I could do it sober, you know, and that's great. And, and that's the message for the newcomer. If you think you're coming to AA and you got to wear the hair shirt and beat yourself up, and God forbid i got to make a meeting a day for the rest of my life, then it's nonsense. One of my favorite sayings in the big book says, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. If the newcomer could see no joy in our existence, they won't want nothing to do with us. Now, obviously, I just paraphrase that last saying that. So... Whatever you did drunk, you could do stone cold sober. You know, be better at it, and most of all, remember it. It's a bliss. You know, uh, I love alcoholics anonymous. I'm not the poster boy of AA. I tell people, come live with me for a week, see what type of guy I am. But you know what? I know I'm not intentionally harming people. I make mistakes, but for the most part, I try to do the right thing. I really believe today that I'm a man of dignity and honor. And I got that through the older gentleman in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I came in, I, you know, I was young, I, I know it all. Man, I was a nitwit. I, I didn't know anything at all. And these men helped me to get my life back together again. You know, we got a friend of mine back home. She says, AA's a corner she always went to hang on. She just didn't know where it was. We hang on a lot of corners in Philadelphia. So uh, it, it's really great to be sober. Uh, you know, please, if you know, get yourself a home group. Home groups are essential. Get yourself a sponsor. If your sponsor hasn't done the steps, you ain't got no business sponsoring you. Get someone who's done the steps. Uh, get involved in service. Uh, you know, pray. It's the whole bowl of wax. It's not just one particular thing. It's just not making meetings. People say meeting makers make it. That's a lie. They make meetings. How many of you people made meetings and, get, and got loaded again? It's a lot more than just making meetings. You know, it's a program of action. It has nothing to do with time. The, the, the promises say, you know, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Well, sometimes because we get involved in the steps quickly, sometimes we get involved in the steps slowly. My experience, I got involved slowly. Please don't do it the way I did it. I was lucky that I didn't swallow my gun. I now know my higher power is looking out after me. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm glad I'm sober, and I thank the committee for the privilege of participating in the AA meeting. That's all I got. Thanks.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.